Good morning. Would you take out your Bible with me, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5? And if you will make the effort to turn to Matthew chapter 5, uh, we'll be in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew for virtually the entire lesson this morning. So if you want to take out your Bible, or if you'd like to take out one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, turn to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and to the fifth chapter. That's where we will begin here in just a moment as we consider some things from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches in chapters 5, 6, and 7. I know we have a lot of teachers here. Congratulations on, on your week off for Thanksgiving. I know that was recharging for you. That's a long stretch uh, to make it to Thanksgiving break, but uh, there's good news ahead. Christmas break isn't too far away as well. Uh, and with all of the teachers in the audience, I know that you've probably spent a lot of times hearing about and implementing objectives, right? Objectives for your lessons. And any good teacher knows that you have to have a clear idea of what it is that you really want to get across. What's your primary purpose in this lesson? What's the primary objectives that you want to uh, your, your students to, to get from the things that you're teaching? And Jesus, as the master teacher, as the perfect teacher, was no different. It is clear that he had some, some purposes, some objectives in the things that he taught. Uh, that's seen very clearly, for example, in his parables. When we think about those stories that Jesus told, he wasn't just telling interesting stories. In almost every single one of those parables, there is a, a central truth, a central purpose or objective to this story Jesus is telling. Uh, and if we miss that, then we really miss what it is that Jesus is teaching. Now, the parables are very simple. Usually it's just one purpose, one objective, something like that. But Jesus' sermons are something entirely different. Instead of having one purpose or one objective, what Jesus does is he weaves this beautiful tapestry of purposes and objectives that he has. Uh, he makes them relate to one another, and then he draws beautiful conclusions and applications from that. As a preacher myself... Uh, it makes me realize how far, far short I am, but it also gives me something to aspire to. I want to have clear purposes, clear objectives, and hopefully by the time you leave here, you'll have an idea of what is it that I was supposed to take from that lesson. With the Sermon on the Mount specifically, um, I've always identified Jesus' purposes, his objectives, in, in three ways. He has purposes regarding what's he, what he wants to teach about the kingdom of God, about the law of Moses, and about his new covenant. So kingdom, law, and covenant. And really what he's doing is he's in some ways correcting misunderstandings that the Jews of his day had about those three things. He's correcting their misunderstanding about the kingdom of God because the Jews expected this physical, material, military leader who was going to come and establish a physical kingdom, who was going to defeat the Romans and restore the Jews to their proper place as the, the nation of God. And Jesus comes and he says in the Sermon on the Mount, my kingdom is not like that. Secondly, he was, he was correcting their misunderstanding about the law of Moses. Because the Jews and their scribes and their rabbis, they had chopped up the law and, and divided it and redivided it. They had interpreted it to death, to where it didn't really mean anything anymore. They had made it all about externals. 
about your physical actions and the things that other people see. And it wasn't at all about the heart. And Jesus comes and he, and he corrects that misunderstanding and he says, the law of Moses is not like that. And then the third thing that he does is that he introduces the higher standard of his new covenant. And he says, I'm coming to establish this new kingdom and a new law greater than the law of Moses, and I'm going to hold you to a higher standard than what Moses did if you want to be a citizen of my kingdom. And yet the greatest thing about that higher standard is it's one that is attainable for us. So those three things. Um, This is kind of a sermonette here before the actual sermon, I guess. The three objectives that Jesus had, at least in my mind, have always been about the kingdom, about the law, and then about establishing his new covenant. But I've seen in the last few weeks something else in this sermon that apparently, for whatever reason, I have always missed. That there's a third area where Jesus is trying to correct their misunderstanding. And it's their misunderstanding, not just of the law, not just of the kingdom, but the nature of God himself. Jesus is striving to correct in this sermon their misunderstanding of who God is. And in many ways, that's more fundamental, right? If we misunderstand who God is, how can we properly understand anything from God, whether that's God's law or God's kingdom or God's covenant? And so to correct this misunderstanding, Jesus refers to God in fatherly terms in the Sermon on the Mount. He is reintroducing the children of God, who these Jews were supposed to be, to their father. We might call it a reintroduction of your father in heaven. In fact, 17 times in these three chapters, Jesus refers to God in fatherly terms. He uses these terms. He calls God your Father, your Heavenly Father, your Father in Heaven, your Father who is in Heaven, our Father in Heaven, and my Father in Heaven. And so Jesus wants His followers, which would include you and I, He wants us to get this picture of God, a Heavenly Father, And this reintroduction, if we see it and comprehend it correctly, is beneficial to us as well as it was to them. Um, Thank you for being here this morning. And I know uh, some of you and others of you I don't. We have a number who are visiting. We're grateful for your presence. And I know that for some of you, the image of a father is a pleasant image. It's an image of somebody who loves you. It's an image of a good father that you had. Maybe you appreciate those concepts of of God's love and God's justice and God's discipline and God's direction and instruction. You appreciate all of those things because you saw those same same things in your father. But I acknowledge that for others of you here this morning, some I know and maybe for others that I don't, the image of a father is not a good image. Maybe it's an image of abandonment or betrayal or even abuse. And whichever of those two is true of you, and for many of us with our fathers, we have good images and bad images. What Jesus does is he gives us a picture of what 
a perfect father is and looks like. And so we're able to see this clearly, not just in the names that Jesus used, because he calls him our father in heaven, and and that draws to mind these different images that we have from our own experiences. Instead, Jesus uses verbs. He uses action words of what this father in heaven does to describe his character. God is everything a father ought to be, and so much more. And so Jesus says, if you're ready in your Bible to turn to these passages, he says, your father in heaven, whatever your physical father was, your father in heaven showers blessings upon you. And he uses those verbs that God makes and God sends and God feeds and God gives. And this is a theme that we find in all three chapters of this sermon. Notice first in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 that you... Matthew 5.45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. If we drop down to chapter 6 and verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God feeds these birds and certainly he's going to provide for you as well. And then finally in chapter 7 and verse 11. In making this comparison to uh, physical parents and God as a father. He says, if you then being evil in comparison to God. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. God showers these blessings upon us. And it's not just random blessings. God also knows what we need. If you look in chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And again in chapter 6 and verse 32, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, like things to eat and things to drink and things to wear. That's powerful, isn't it? That God knows what we need, and He knows what we need not so that He can deny us of those things, but so that He can give those things. God wants to bless us, but more importantly, He knows how to bless us. He knows exactly what we need. Um, have you ever seen someone uh, give, give their child something? You know, Christmas is coming up and you know, people come back to school or maybe you're there with extended family and you see a parent give a child something and you think, why in the world did they do that? That is the last thing in the world that child needs. I had a good friend in high school. His uh, parents gave him a new Camaro. Let me tell you from experience, from well, just from experience, he did not need that new Camaro, and that new Camaro didn't last very long. It was a great gift, but it was not the gift that he needed, right? And maybe, maybe you've given your own child something with the best intentions and then regretted it. Why did I do that? And how can I go about stealing this back from them in a way that they don't realize it, right? Well, God knows what is best for us. And you know what he gives us? Exactly what is best for us. 
He doesn't accidentally give us the wrong thing. He knows what we need, and He knows what we need even before we ask. God knows, and He knows all things. But it's not just that God knows, it's also that God sees. And God sees in secret because He is in the secret place. Uh, We'll read these verses here in just a moment when we get to our next point. But God sees in secret. And growing up... um, my dad, if you don't know me, my dad was a, uh, was a teacher and a coach and then a principal and then a superintendent. And by the time I was in uh, high school, he was a superintendent. And it was a small town, small community with a small school. And so it was kind of like my dad saw in secret all things. Because I tell you what, you know, if I did something wrong, somebody was going to rat me out. You know, somebody was going to tell my dad about it. And so it kind of felt like he, he always knew those things about me. But with God, there is a sense in which he is everywhere. He's in heaven and he's in my closet at the same time, Jesus says. But really what that is, is an expression of God's ability to see all things, that God knows everything that is going on everywhere for all time. That means brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. That, God, that means God sees everything that you do, even those things that others don't even know about. And He knows not just everything you actually do. He knows everything that's in your heart. He knows everything that you think in your mind. Now, quick, gut reaction, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel that God sees everything that you do, even behind closed doors, And God knows everything that you feel and think. Is that comforting to you? Is that terrifying to you? Is it a little bit of both? I would suggest that our reaction to this reality that God sees in secret says a lot about where our hearts and actions are in this life. Because the way Jesus uses this phrase of, Jesus, of God seeing in secret, it is supposed to be a good thing. It is supposed to be a comforting thing. And it does. It brings comfort to know that God sees our deeds in secret and will reward us openly if, if our deeds in secret are godly. But it is terrifying to know that God promises that our sins will find us out, that He sees and knows all things if our deeds in secret are sinful. And because he sees all things, even those things done in secret, God is in a position where he can reward those who are sincere. He knows what's in our hearts. But also God will not and promises that he doesn't reward those who are hypocritical, those who do not have the best intentions in their heart. Notice a few verses that talk about this. Chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 1. Take heed, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing 
synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then one more example, if you drop down to verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And also, very similarly, He doesn't just reward the sincere, He also forgives those who are forgiving and doesn't forgive those who are unforgiving. Two more verses, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know what I love about all this? I know that's a lot of reading. You know what I love about it? That's fair, isn't it? Um, God's up front about it. I'm going to reward the sincere, not the hypocritical. I'm going to forgive the forgiving, not the unforgiving. But I also love it because although it's fair, it's also attainable for you and I. Uh, I don't have to be perfect in my giving, for example. That's the first thing that he talks about. Our charitable deeds... You know, there are times, and, and I've seen times in my life, where I've helped the wrong person. Or maybe I didn't help the right person. I wasn't perfect in that. And, and I might not always be perfect in my stewardship of my blessings. I might misallocate what I give and where I give it. But I don't have to be perfect in all of those things. What do I have to be? I have to be sincere. I have to do it for the good of God and others and not to be seen by men. And so too with my prayers and so too with my fasting, if I choose to fast, I don't have to be perfect in those things. But I do have to be sincere. My heart has to be set on pleasing God, not pleasing myself, not pleasing men in those things. And similarly, when it comes to forgiveness, uh, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be in a position where I never need forgiveness from other people. In fact, I know that I will need forgiveness from others and from God. I don't have to be perfect, but I do have to be forgiving of others to receive God's forgiveness. Now, what is this? It's just, isn't it? But it is also merciful. It's truthful. This is reality, but it's also gracious because that's who God is. Brothers and sisters, this is your Father in heaven as Jesus describes him. My question is, with your picture of God, your Father, is this the picture that you have? of a God who showers blessings, who knows what you need, who sees in secret because he is in the secret, who rewards the sincere and forgives the forgiving, because that is the picture 
that God demands the citizens of his kingdom to have of our God. And if we see God for who he really is, it will clear up so many of the hurdles we have to get over in our life and service. If we see God as he really is like this, won't we be eager to obey him? Won't we be eager to be like him? Won't we be eager to give to him and ask him for our needs and desires and prayer, expecting an answer And we'll be eager to seek to draw others to him. And we'll be eager to do so many other things that we might talk about this morning. But those are the specific applications that Jesus makes in his sermon. Knowing your father for who he really is gives you this great desire, this earnest expectation in your heart. I see God and my misunderstandings of who God was that I might have had because of my past or the traditions or maybe even experiences with my own father knowing my father in heaven for who he really is should give me a great desire to do four things that we see in this text in the sermon on the mount it should give me a great desire first to imitate him i want to be like him i want to be like him because i appreciate so much who he is and what he is like Uh, go back to the beginning in some ways of this sermon In Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is bringing kind of this first section to a close, he says, in talking about loving our enemies, which is super difficult, he says, you need to love your enemies and bless those who curse you, verse 44. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's tough. How do we do it? How are we motivated to do that? Why would I have any desire to love my enemies? Well, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, verse 48, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, Children who love and respect their fathers want to be like them. And as God's children, our first goal should be to imitate our God, especially in his love for others. Uh, I love what Paul Earnhardt says of this last verse. Will you allow me to read this quote to you? He says, there is something immeasurably grand as well as deeply disturbing about being called upon to be like God. The possibility thrills while while the challenge frightens. The perfection which Jesus both promises and commands for his disciples does not refer to God's sinless righteousness, but to the fullness and completeness of of his love. Our imperfect, selective goodwill must be enlarged to encompass all men. Such a love will not be bought at a cheap price. Pain and agony are in the process. But we must grow up to be like our Father or yield the right to be called his children. If we see God for who he really is, it'll motivate us as his children to imitate. Him. Secondly, 
knowing our Father in heaven, should give us the desire to pray to him. All of those things that we talked about him fulfilling our needs and seeing in secret and knowing those needs and his desire to bless us is found in in these ideas. In in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, in talking about prayer, Jesus says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And how does he begin that prayer? Do you remember? Most of us can quote it, right? The Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is the one that we're addressing. And so we're reminding ourselves, not reminding God he's our Father, he knows it, reminding us that God is our Father before we go into a prayer to ask him for the things that we need. I remind myself that he's my Father, knowing that's the one to whom we're praying. And that should make us want to pray knowing that he showers us with blessings and knows what we need even before we ask should make us want to pray. But I want you to turn also to Matthew chapter 7 and let's read verses 7 through 11 together. Jesus says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? I mean, that's cold, isn't it? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your your Father who is in heaven... Good things to those who what? Who ask him. Those who go to him in prayer. God wants to give us what is best for us. So we need to keep on asking. And do so in the assurance of two truths. Number one, this is incredible. Are you ready for this? God, the creator of the universe, his action, his actions are impacted by my requests. When Reagan McClenney, as a child of God, goes to God in prayer, God promises that he hears that prayer, that he answers that prayer, and that his actions are impacted by the things that I say. And that is true, not just for me, of course, but for all of his children who are in this relationship with him. The creator of the universe is willing to act based on our needs and requests. Why? Because he's our father. But secondly, I'm I'm grateful for this assurance too. If our hearts are right, God will not act in a way that is contrary to what is best for us, even if we ask for it. Even if we ask for something that is not the best thing for us, God promises that he will not act in that way that is contrary to us. Um, I was watching football, college football, yesterday afternoon, and I couldn't believe what one of the commentators said. Uh, it's uh, maybe a misapplication of the phrase, but uh, he said in the middle of this football broadcast, he says, you know, sometimes sometimes you have to thank God for unanswered prayers. The unanswered prayer that he was talking about was one of their receivers were out, so some of the other receivers were stepping up. I'm not sure that's exactly what that phrase is talking about, but that phrase is true, isn't it? Have you ever had to thank God for an unanswered prayer? Uh, Yeah, have you? I have. 
I prayed and I prayed fervently, God, this is what I believe I need. Hopefully I said, but your will be done in those things. And God didn't give it to me. And it wasn't until much later that I look back and I say, you know what? That is not at all what I actually needed. You know, I love what Alec Mortier says. If it were the case that whatever we asked, God was pledged to give. I asked for it, God has to give it like some genie in a bottle. Then I, for one, he says, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. God knows better than I do. And so sometimes he doesn't give me what I want. Why? Because he's my father. And fathers sometimes know what is better for their children than their children do. And God always does for us. And so I pray to him. I ask and I ask and ask fervently. But in all things, I leave it in his hands according to his will. And finally, we have the bookends of the sermon. And God is our father and us as his children. In making peace with God and others as we draw people to our Father as his sons and obeying God like our older brother Jesus. And so our final two things, knowing your Father in heaven makes you desire to draw others to him. And it should, it should give you the desire to obey him in all things. Let's consider those last two points. First, drawing others to him. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 9. Jesus begins the preaching on this upside-down spiritual kingdom with what we call the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10. And he talks about how these people are going to be blessed and happy. And it's not at all the people that we would expect, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. But for each of these, he makes a promise along with those things. And in verse 9 it says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. If you're a peacemaker, this means that you are a son or a child of God. And that makes sense because God is peace. And all real lasting peace comes from God. And so being a peacemaker means making peace with God ourselves so that he's our father, we're his son, we're at peace with them. But then that peace permeates every other part of our lives. Division, uh, we know, has its grisly purpose sometimes in showing who's right and who's wrong. But what God desires and what we should desire as his children is peace. Chumley says, peacemakers are those who first make peace with God, second encourage others to make peace with him, and third seek to live in peace with all men. Peacemakers here are not just those kinds of people who are agreeable, you know, the ones who can get along with anybody. Maybe that's part of it, but primarily what this is talking about are those kinds of people who are at peace with God and are seeking to help everybody else find peace with God as well. Because we know, don't we? We've lived in this world long enough to know that the only way to have real and lasting peace between any two people is if both of those people have peace with God. If one of us is at war with God, 
I don't care how good our attitude or personality might be in those things. If one of us is at war with God while the other is at peace with Him, there will always be a barrier to the peace between us. But we seek to draw others to God, not just to have peace, but because of how great our God is. When we imitate God and become a reflection of Him and His will, it shows others what our Father is like. And that's the next thing that Jesus says in verses 14 through 16. He says, you, you as sons of God, you as kingdom citizens, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Perhaps perhaps the greatest compliment that you can receive as a parent is for someone to love you because of the behavior of your kids. To like you and assume that you must be a good person because of how your kids behave, because of who they are. And may we be that for our Father in heaven. May others see our good works and glorify Him because we are like Him. But that means in the final totality when all else is said, we must obey Him. Turn to chapter 7. We'll read these last few verses and the lesson will be yours. Before talking about the solid foundation of the things that he says, really the final application that Jesus makes is in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, and I assume that to be the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's simple, isn't it? It answers... So many questions that people in the religious world have. No, calling Jesus Lord is not enough. It's not. No, doing things in God's name isn't enough. Yes, you have to obey His will and do His will. Yes, you will go to hell if you don't. And yes, your works and obedience are required to be saved and go to heaven. But that's, that's all a pretty negative way of looking at it. Isn't it more simple to just say how foolish not to obey and how wise, how simple, how simple to obey if we know our Father in heaven? If we know these five things about God, obedience to a Father, to a God like that should be simple. Won't you obey the good news this morning? That's what Jesus came proclaiming the good news of this kingdom, the good news of of what that kingdom really was. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. The the good news of what God was always requiring, what He always wanted, even the law of Moses, was our hearts. 
The good news of his covenant, one that is not a covenant of death, but one of life. A covenant not where we have to be perfect in order to attain anything, but instead of a covenant that is attainable through Christ's blood and through his sacrifice. But even more, the good news of a God like this. A God who is your Father in heaven, who loves you and wants to save you. Won't you become a citizen of Christ's kingdom this morning and a child of God? Won't you be born again in the waters of baptism? Come now and obey while together we stand and while we sing. Though your sins be as God.